Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Uh, welcome back. I want to talk with you today about a great danger to Americans. It's the explosion of a rampant, hyper-regulating federal agencies that have grown so numerous, so far exceeded their intended power, that they have become, in effect, a fourth branch of government. They have come to be called the administrative state, although technically part of the administrative branch or the executive branch, much of what they've done has become largely unaccountable to any president. And critically, they have taken over huge parts of the legislative role of Congress. To understand how, look at the federal courts, which have failed to carry out their primary constitutional re responsibility, which is to enforce separation of powers by ensuring that the elected branches of government, the legislative and the executive, that is Congress and the president, remain independent and separate from one another. This failure means that unelected bureaucrats of the administrative state are making decisions and rulings for the American people that in a democracy should only be made by Congress. With me today to talk about this is an old friend, Peter Wallison. Peter is uh, co-director of American Enterprise Institute's uh, Program on Financial Policy Studies. And as general counsel for the US Treasury Department, he had a significant role in the development of the Reagan administration's proposals for the deregulation of the financial services industry. Peter has recently written a terrific book, just published by Encounter Books, called Judicial Fortitude, The Rise of the Last Chance to Raise in the Administrative State, which is now available on Amazon. And it's a highly recommended read um, if you want to understand this problem and the solution as Peter outlines in its book. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Bill. Good to be with you. Um, so what's the problem with the administrative state? Sounds a little ominous, is it? It's very ominous. In fact, the book begins with a statement that we are in danger of losing our democracy unless we can gain control of the agencies of the administrative state. So that should be ominous enough for most people. And I deliberately started the book with that in order to emphasize the importance of this point. It is not just a, a point about the government and its structure. It's a point about whether our democracy will actually survive. And by the administrative straight, just to boil it down, we're talking about departments of labor, EPA, the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau, FCC, FTC, all the, all the different agencies, the, the alphabet soup and, and the cabinet posts that have come to have a lot of powers that uh, the Constitution, Constitution never intended them to have. That's exactly right. They have tremendous amounts of power that the framers, I think, would have been shocked uh, to see. The, um, you know, one of the things that is interesting, we talk about the dangers of the administrative state uh, there are a lot of people who think the administrative state is great. And it really, the seeds of the administrative state really were sown in the 1880s through the 1920s. 
with the uh, progressive era movement. And you write a, there's a terrific chapter in your book about that. Could you uh, tell me about uh, the antecedents of the administrative state and uh, how it got launched by uh, the politicians in the 80s? I think Roosevelt and then Wilson in the 20s or the 1900, early 20th century were the, uh, were the biggest leaders of this uh, movement. Yes, this is really very interesting. Um, we've all forgotten now about the great progressive movement of that period from about 1880 to uh, 1920. Uh, but it is very important for what is happening today. The progressive, uh, progressives of that time, it will be shocking, I think, to most people to know this, but Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt both wanted substantial modifications in the Constitution. They thought that the Constitution was too rigid to take on the problems that the government was facing at that time. Uh, so they wanted much less of the constitutional system to survive and much more power to be given to administrative agencies. There were very few administrative agencies at that time. They wanted more set up and they hoped that these agencies then would be staffed by disinterested, intelligent, uh, uh, ambitious people who would do the right things for the American people. And uh, that is the real beginning of what has now developed into an administrative state. And there is a whole process that is explained in the book about how this developed. And uh, it's, it's fascinating and it, it even affects the decisions of the courts in the New Deal because these progressive ideas that were so important to Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt, although they, were although they were never actually adopted in the form of a change in the Constitution, the idea that the government should be run by intelligent, disinterested people who don't have to pay particular attention to a Constitution is where uh, has really uh, come to be the reality in today's world. Well, at its roots, there were two fundamentally different views of human nature. The, the, uh, the Constitution was drafted to preserve and protect liberty. And the founders believed, and I believe, and you believe, in the, the sort of unchangeability of human nature and the rules that you set up then and separations of power uh, are a good thing to protect people and protect individual freedoms. The, pro the progressives and, and, and Roosevelt, not Roosevelt, Wilson wrote about this extensively, didn't believe that. They believed in the malleability of human nature, the, the improvability of human beings, and that they could, uh, they could manage progress, and they saw progress as inevitable, and that with these experts that you talk about, they could, they could manage better outcomes and, and improve, improve people through their, uh, uh, their enlightened lead. Yeah, there is, there is a great deal of that. Um, that is, people should be led by their betters. Um, and their betters were the more intelligent intellectuals um, who would staff these agencies. Um, I think to really understand how radical this was, though, I think people have to understand why the Constitution structured the government as it did. Uh, the framers in the late 18th century, that is in the 1700s, 17. 1780 and so on, 
when the when there was thought being given to the kind of structure the U.S. government should take in a new constitution, the framers had as a reference the danger of an administrative agency or a an executive of any kind having both the power to make laws and the power to enforce them. And I think any American can understand immediately that if the president of the United States, no matter who you think is the president, um, if the president of the United States or any of the agencies of the, of the executive has the power to make a rule or a law and to enforce the law, liberty would be jeopardized. And as you point out, Bill, the lodestar for the framers of our constitution was the people's liberty. And they thought that by putting all of the legislative authority in the hands of Congress, controlled by the people, the people would be safe from that kind of danger. Well, the, you know, fast forwarding to today, you know, we have these big bills being written and passed. We had the Affordable Care Act. We had Dodd-Frank. You and I are both big fans of Dodd-Frank and maybe Sarbanes-Oxley before that as in <laughs> the terrible laws. But they did write these big bills. They did legislate. And yet, even though we had 2,000 pages in the Affordable Care Act, and I don't know how many in Dodd-Frank, your book, and you contend, and I agree, that they didn't really write legislation. They did something else. What did they do? Well, they, what they did was they empowered regulatory and administrative agencies to make the rules. In fact, Dodd-Frank was famous for the fact that that legislation itself required 400 regulations by the financial agencies of the United States. So the whole point of these laws was to empower the regulatory agencies. The Congress itself made very few major decisions. And if you think about the incentives of Congress in today's world, it, it's understandable, and the book covers this, and that is that if they don't have to make the big decisions, if they just tell people that they've solved the problem by sending the big decisions to these administrative agencies, that's great from their point of view. They get all the electoral advantages of saying they solved the problem, um, but all the major decisions and the tough ones, the ones that people will really get angry about, are made by the administrative agencies. And so when a congressman is meeting his constituents and they complain to him about some terrible regulation they found they have to comply with, he says, oh, well, I didn't vote for that. I didn't that vote for that. <laughs> I didn't vote for that. That was done by the administrative agency. And the, the constituent doesn't really understand that the congressman really did vote for that by empowering the administrative agency and knowing that the agency was going to do things that uh, he, the congressman, didn't want to vote for. Well, and the framers uh, incorrectly assumed that Congress would want to protect its power to make specific laws and they didn't anticipate the development of, uh, that you just described. But then this brings us back to the third branch, the courts. And the courts are supposed to determine whether this process that we just described is constitutional or um, you know, is, is in line with what the, the, the founders wanted. How have the courts played a role in, in letting this, uh, letting this uh, trend happen? 
Well, the reason the book is called Judicial Fortitude, many people have asked, well, that's a kind of an odd title. But the reason formidable. is... It's a formidable title. It's a formidable title. <laughs> um, but uh, Alexander Hamilton was one of the people who was a major framer of the Constitution, he and James Madison. And uh, he wrote, uh, all of them wrote things called Federalist Papers to try to persuade the public at the time to adopt the Constitution. Uh, and in Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Paper 78, he goes into uh, a lot about what the judiciary was for. And in his view, one of the things the judiciary was supposed to do was to preserve the separation of powers that I talked about before. And that is that all of the legislation is supposed to be done by Congress. And, all, and the only thing the executive does is administer what Congress has authorized it to do. Federalist 78 was his way of explaining why the framers gave the courts lifetime appointments. And he was saying they need these judges will need the fortitude to stand up to the very in the Constitution that the elected branches are going to be inclined to make in the future. Did he because use the word fortitude? Fortitude comes right out of okay. Federalist 78. <laughs> and so, and that's why I chose it because I, in reading that article, uh, that uh, essay, I was so impressed with his foresight and his way of understanding what would happen in the future. And it did actually happen in the future if we get to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the, uh, Hamilton really put his finger on uh, a purpose for the courts that, as far as I can tell, no one has ever emphasized in the 200 years that we've had this constitution. Um, and that is that the courts have an obligation, not just to interpret the constitution, and there we, that's a completely different thing from interpreting the words of the constitution. What the courts have to determine is the structure of the constitution. It's a completely mm -hmm. different idea. And that is the separation of powers. The courts have a, a responsibility to maintain the separation of powers and make sure that the laws are only made by Congress and that the executive only has the power to enforce those laws, not to make any itself. And that's where the courts have failed. And the thinking about that is, I don't have the quote in front of me, but, the, but there are two parts to that. There's one where Congress is not doing its constitutional duty by delegating too much. And then there's another part where the administrative agency, even though the law was precise, it itself takes on too much. So they're, they're, you've got to watch both what Congress does and what the agencies do. Exactly. And there, those are two different concepts that are discussed in detail in the book. Um, the first is called the non-delegation doctrine, mm -hmm. in which uh, the, the courts have not been enforcing it. But it and many scholars believe that when Congress delegates legislative authority to the agencies, they are violating the Constitution. And everyone can understand why that is true, because the framers wanted to make sure 
that the laws, the major decisions for the society were made by Congress and not by the executive. In fact, if they are made by the executive, executive, we are back to what the framers feared would happen um, if the king were in charge. That is the ability not only to enforce the law, but to make the law. And so under this non-delegation doctrine, the courts should have stopped Congress from authorizing the agencies to do things that only Congress can authorize them to do. And then um, we had a subsequent issue that perhaps we can discuss, which is called Chevron. Oh, no, we, we want to get into Chevron. We've got plenty of time to talk about it. I just wanted to set it up so we know where we, we ran off the ra rails. Uh, when we talk about legislation, isn't there some very vague language in the EPA, in the legislation that created the EPA that basically just said, we want you to keep the waters of America clean or something else and uh, basically didn't get into any details about how the Environmental Protection Agency was supposed to do that. That's right. And of course, that's, that's the, a typical and very substantial goals legislation because it tells the administrative agency, Congress has told the administrative agency what to do, but hasn't made the major decisions so that a person who has a pond on his property and suddenly finds that that pond is regulated or what he does with that pond is regulated by the federal government, um, he finds this very puzzling because he had never understood that in any way his pond was to be controlled from Washington, but the EPA has the power to make rules that will govern um, what is happening at the very most, uh, very lowest levels of uh, the economy, with where individuals are dealing with their own property, and they were not. Yeah, here's, here's, here's the language: to take all steps necessary to ensure that the waters of the United States are clean and helpful. Helpful. That's right. There you go. Um, so to take all steps. You drive a truck through that. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what's exactly happened. So what's the other part of, the, of what the courts are supposed to do in terms of watching well, the, the, the regulators? Well, first, first of course, they, the courts were supposed to endorse and uphold the so-called non-delegation doctrine that I described, and they have failed to do that. They tried to do it, and they were attacked um, by President Roosevelt, and that was the last time they ever tried to do it. So uh, they, in 1984, however, they took a different tack. And following kind of the progressive ideas uh, that were started almost 100 years before, uh, in 1984, the Supreme Court said to the lower courts, if you're confronted with a statute in which a, an agency has claimed that it has power to regulate something, mm -hmm. you should defer to the agency's view of whether it has the power. Um, normally, the courts would not defer to agencies. They would look at the statute themselves and decide whether the power was given to the agency by Congress. Case, the so-called Chevron case, does the opposite. It says to all the lower courts, 
when you're con when someone is challenged to stat a, a regulation of an administrative agency, you are to look at the agency's interpretation and defer to it if you think it is reasonable. And that opened up a, a huge opportunity for the agencies, which they have used. What are the facts of the Chevron case? It was Chevron versus... Uh... NRDC, Natural what? Resources Defense Council. And what were, what were the issues in the case? Here it was. The, uh, in, the, in the Clean Air Act, uh, there was a requirement that any stationary source of pollution, and that was defined as certain kinds of chemicals put into the air, uh, any stationary source of, of, that, of that pollution in an amount of, I think it was 250 tons a year, had to apply for a permit uh, to operate. And the question arose whether it was an individual factory that was the stationary source, or could it be a group of factories together in one place, which apparently Chevron had, where they argued that if they took, if they took down the amount of pollution that came from one source within that group, that they shouldn't have to apply for a permit for increasing the amount of pollution that's coming from another factory within that same bubble. The court looked at that and decided that the bubble concept was, well, let me stick step back and say it was the EPA that looked at this during the Reagan administration mm -hmm. and decided that the bubble concept um, was within the authority of the agency to make as a matter of policy. Now, there were other things that the, courts, the court could have said. The court could have said, for example, that whether it's a <clears throat> bubble concept or an individual um, plant is not really a major question here. It's something that is a detail that the agency could have uh, done on its own. But by saying that this was a policy that Congress had authorized the agency to, even though Congress never said a word about it, implicitly said the court they had authorized the agency, then we that is, the courts will defer to agencies in all such matters where Congress has not said anything, but the agency is doing something under the language of the statute that is a matter of policy that probably Congress wanted them to decide. Mm. And once you say that, the agencies, it's really a Katie bar the door idea. Uh, the agencies then were at, were at liberty. Uh, to use their statutes, not only the new statutes, but every statute providing authority for them in the past um, to uh, add new regulations and rules. So we're no longer talking about a law. We're talking about reading the minds of Congress when they pass something as to whether that was their intent or not, and then they defer to good intentions that the EPA has now taken up and run with. That's right. And you can see in that idea, yeah. even yeah, though yeah. it was 1984, you can see the progressive idea from the 1880s to the 1920s. You can see how that idea that the agencies know more, they're smarter, they're disinterested, they're better, how that idea could inform 
a decision by Congress in 1984, and the book traces those things all the way through. So let's 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 talk about how Chevron has played out in the last three decades. What's uh, what? Where are we? Where that was then, and what has happened over over the last, I guess, 35 years really now, uh, in terms of uh, how that shaped uh, decisions and agencies' rulings and agencies' actions. Well, the agencies have broadened their activities substantially. There are a number of examples in in the book about where agencies have gone well beyond what Congress could possibly have have authorized. But just in terms of numbers, just so people can get a sense of this, um, every year since 1993, when people started counting, every year since 1993, the last 25 years, these agencies have issued more than three thousand rules Mm. for a total of over 101,000 rules in those 25 years. And that's one of the reasons why they're out of control. I mean, if you're issuing more than 3,000 rules in in a year, it's impossible for the president, even the president of the United States, who is supposed to be the head of the executive branch and control what the agencies do, it's impossible for the president to examine all those rules or all the president's staff to examine all those rules and decide that they make sense or they're within legal, the legal range that they should be in. They're just able to roll out over the American people uh, without any controls. Well, I don't want to veer off another topic, but what's happened also during this period of time is the agencies, whether it's EPA or any other agencies, undergone something called regulatory capture where the industries that they're regulating have begun working with them to create rules to protect the companies in those industries and thereby keeping out competitors. And, and it, it's brought us uh, uh, what we now call crony capitalism. And so we get this hand-in-hand relationship between the big businesses that are regulated and the regulators. And you know, increasingly, they just work together in lockstep, and that's terrible for growth and economic innovation. That's exactly right. And again, it's a problem created by the progressives who never really understood how these administrative and regulatory agencies would work. The progressives of that era, and really even the progressives today, these are the the descendants, the intellectual descendants of the progressive era, take the same general position, and that is that these disinterested, credentialed, intelligent, well-motivated people are going to be making the right decisions for the American people, even though the American people don't know it. And so what they have done, in effect, is become negotiators with the industries and the interests involved. They negotiate out things that they like and the industry can stand, and that's happy for both parties because, as you point out, competitors can't enter under many of these rules. And that's where we are today. Uh, and it, it, if, it, if, it, if we haven't made it clear, it's, it's clear that the progressives from the 1880s on have, have, have distrusted markets, hated markets, don't believe in, in competitive process, bringing about better solutions, and only the disinterested elite, and I put that in quotes, can, can give us great, great outcomes. Which brings us to something, and I want to get into the solution to Chevron in a minute, but it brings us to something you write about in the book called Public Choice. And I, I have my own spin on what public choice means, which is that if you get two kids graduating from Penn State and one goes, goes to work for an oil company and the other goes to work for the uh, EPA, all of a sudden the, 
the one that goes to work for the oil company becomes an evil capitalist and the worst person going to the EPA becomes a disinterested elite savior of, of, of the country. Same people, same background, same schools. And, you know, fast forward 20 years are sitting on the other side of the table and one is, one's the villain and one's the hero and public choice would tell us, and I want you to correct me because I'm sure I'm oversimplifying that. No, 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 no. The bureaucrats have interests. Bureaucrats have, uh, the same wants and needs of, of the rest of humanity. So you can't necessarily assume that these guardian angels are going to make the right choice for society. Yes, an economist by the name of James Buchanan actually yeah. got a Nobel Prize for recognizing that the administrators have interests just like ordinary private citizens do. And they want power and they want more appropriations from Congress. And that is one of the, uh, they want more people who are uh, subordinate to them. And so that is one of the reasons why the agencies do these things, why they don't just stop making the rules. They yeah. keep making rules so they can go to Congress and say, you see, there was this problem and we've solved this problem. So we need more money. I need more staff um, so we can continue to do the good things we are doing for the American people. I want to put in another shameless plug for your book. If you read this book, you're going to see a tremendous or terrific summary of where we've come from the progressive era to today. And you also write a great summary of what, uh, what public choice is all about. So if you want to learn a lot about not only judicial fortitude, but all these other things that afflict us now, this is, this is the place to start, judicial fortitude. Now, coming back to this issue we've been talking about in the solution, Chevron, okay. Courts are deferring to the agencies. Big problem. What's the solution? Well, the solution is to deal first with Chevron by having the court um, uh, tell lower courts that from now on, we want you to engage in what is traditionally called judicial review. And that is you look at the statute, you determine what powers Congress actually intended to give to the agency. And if the agency has gone beyond that range, you're to say this, this statute was uh, excessive or this interpretation was excessive and it, turn it down or, or void it or take some other step. Um, it, Brett Kavanaugh, when he was on the Court of Appeals, uh, in a case in 2015 said, when an agency tries to do anything of major substance that is not specifically authorized to it in a statute, that uh, they have to go back to Congress. That's the essence of what you do if you want to control the the growth of the administrative state and deal with the problems created by the Chevron case. Because if they have to go back to Congress uh, for some new kind of initiative that they want to use old language for, that, will, that has two great effects. One is it prevents the administrative agencies from going beyond their remit, what Congress wanted them to do. And the second thing is even better, and it forces Congress to start acting. And that is something that they've been able to avoid over time. 
I think I'm going to subtitle this show, How to Get Congress to Do What It Should Be Doing. That would be a very popular topic in many people's minds since they clearly have not been doing it. So that's reason for optimism. Kavanaugh is now on the court. Uh, I think I think Gorsuch has also taken a similar line, has he not? Absolutely. Now, when Gorsuch was uh, a, wasn't even a candidate for the court, he was on the Court of Appeals, um, he was writing uh, de- decisions in which he said, you know, this, this Chevron thing is inconsistent with the structure of the Constitution that the framers had intended. So I don't have the power where I am today to do anything about it when he was just on the Court of Appeals, but now he does when he's on the Supreme Court. And so Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and three other members of the Supreme Court today um, are able, I think, are constitutionalists and are able to take this on. Where was Scalia on this? Ah, very interesting question. Scalia was always one of the major supporters of the Chevron case. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a lot of his decisions. I've read things that he wrote before he went on the court. And he had an odd idea that uh, for some reason, Chevron gave Congress kind of a background against which to legislate. I don't understand what he had in mind, and he never explained it fully in, the, in his decisions. But in, an, in 2015, in what I think was his last major decision in this area before his unfortunate death, um, he began to pull back from that position. Hmm. And he suddenly seemed to recognize that the Administrative Procedure Act which was adopted by Congress in 1946, actually required the courts to engage in judicial review of statutes, which is the very opposite of what the Chevron case held. So he began to change. He began to move back toward the position that were taken by uh, Chief Justice Roberts and uh, and the other, and two other justices, yeah, Thomas and, uh, yeah. Thomas, is, and uh, Thomas and Alito. And I might oh, mention yeah. that I've, I've dedicated the book <clears throat> to Thomas, because Thomas is the one person on the court who, for his entire time on the court, has been calling attention to the fact that the court has been ignoring um, the importance of the separation of powers. So when we talked about this a couple of years ago, when you're thinking about writing it and written, wrote it and turned out to be terrific, uh, I was sort of pessimistic because I didn't see the court would ever get to where you thought uh, they ought to get. Now, now it looks like we've got reason for optimism. Yes, I'm, I'm optimistic. And I, I think that uh, from reading their decisions of all of these five justices that we just talked about, um, they're ready. They need the right case to come before them, and uh, we'll see how, how, how things proceed from there. Well, that's... But, uh, I, but they all recognize the inconsistency between Chevron and what the framers had in mind for what the courts were supposed to do. And this solution lies in the hands of the Supreme Court. There's a, this not something the lower courts can, can reinterpret. We've got to that's count. Right. Okay. That's right. And in fact, if the Supreme Courts do it, if the Supreme Court does it, the lower courts will all follow suit. It's not. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the court system is once these decisions are made, they propagate 
throughout the court system immediately. So it's not as though the court will have to deal with many, many cases. All they have to do is deal with one case and pronounce a change in the Chevron idea or uh, use the non-delegation doctrine in only a single case. And then all of a sudden, other courts begin to adopt that because they follow the pres precedents established by the Supreme Court. So this has the potential to be a massive change and reason for uh, us thinking the issues of crony capitalism and the deep state and the K Street culture we have, we could, we could, uh, we see, we could see some good change here. Yes, it's entirely possible. Now, it won't be quick. Yeah. I mean, the way yeah. the court system works, yeah. the cases have to make, the, make it up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to make the decision, and then things will start to change. But I think within our lifetimes, Bill, we'll see some changes. I love it. Because we, well, of course, we plan to live a long time, so I don't, <laughs> I don't want to bet against ourselves. Yeah, final word, Peter. Anything else that we should have covered about the book that I didn't, um, other than making sure everybody buys it and reads it? <laughs> uh, no, you've covered it wonderfully. I would just stress again to people that this is not just a, a dry legal issue. This is a question of whether we will actually have a democracy whether the people of the United States are actually going to be responsible for what laws are put into place or whether they are going to allow the, the nice folks, the intelligent, elite people who live around Washington, D.C. and are part of the government to make these decisions for them. That's probably not something the American people as a whole want. And um, they should have the opportunity to make this choice. Peter, thank you. Uh, Judicial Fortitude, it just came out, it's on Amazon, uh, published by Encounter Books. Peter, where can people reach you at AEI? The, well, uh, uh, I, I have an email. Okay, good. <laughs> which is pwallison at aei.org. Okay, Peter, thank you. Uh, fascinating and uh, reasons for optimism. Thank you, Bill. Good to talk with you. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.